My life is hid with Christ on high. I hope that that's your confession this morning. Gives you hope in these times. Your life is hidden with him and in him. What a great hope. Westmount, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Exodus with me. The book of Exodus, chapter 39. Chapter 39. We continue the account here in Exodus. As you follow along, if, by the way, if you're visiting with us, another warm welcome to you. And if you need a copy of God's Word, you'll see one right in front of you. Just grab that and follow along. Second book, 39th chapter, Exodus. We have been in this study of Exodus now for two years or so, and we round the bend and continue in these closing chapters of the book. And in these closing chapters, we've been looking at tabernacle fulfillment, tabernacle fulfillment. This is the work, remember, flowing from the instructions. That's the key, the work flowing from the instructions. Thus far in this fulfillment, we've seen the Lord's contribution, the Lord's contribution, the hearts opened wide, willingly, generously contributing to the divine project. We've also observed, and this is last week, the Lord's construction, the Lord's construction, the precise execution, the build of what God commanded. Each tabernacle piece we saw assembled. Now, as we recall those instructions, maybe you take a moment, think back to those instructions in chapters 25 to 31, you would expect, if you've been tracking in this study, you would suspect one more piece of fulfillment here. You, you might say there's one piece that's been missing, not a tabernacle piece, those ministering in the tabernacle, of course, the priests, chapter 28 is in view, all the instructions given to the priests. The priests, of course, as we talk about, are Aaron and his sons. Aaron, brother of Moses, a Levite like him, God choosing Aaron to begin the line of priests. The Levites then, the chosen tribe to stand for all tribes. Hang on to that. The chosen tribe to stand for all the tribes. The priests were the only ones thus permitted in the holy place. And only one, one day of the year, was permitted into the most holy place. Levites, priests. These were the people among a people. We would say it this way, the Israelites among Israelites. The representative Israelites of all Israelites. They were the ones designated to stand for the people before God. You see that? They were the designates to do that, to stand for the people before God. And by way of recap, we noted in our study of chapter 28, this universal awareness, and I think we all are aware of it, it's this, that humanity is keenly, I would say, innately aware of the need for a mediator. Humanity is very aware that mediation is needed with a transcendent deity. You see this reality played out, or at least the attempt of it to be played out in most other religion. History reveals that to us, and we've commented on that. But remember, cults have priests. 
The Roman Catholics have priests. Even all the way back to this time in Exodus, remember Jethro was a priest, a Midianite priest. Chapter 18, Jethro, of course, Moses' father-in-law, we were introduced to him in chapter 18, verse 1, as a priest of Midian. So the necessity of priests, again, is not just an Israelite entity. All humanity has its own, and we must say this, often perverse manifestation. And why? Because humanity would recognize that the need is clear. The need is obvious. There's something we can't do before God. There needs to be a buffer, if you will. There needs to be an intermediary. We know that. How can we, we recognize those true among us, how can we mankind stand before deity? How can we, when we recognize our hearts and ourselves, how can we appear before God? And certainly with any notion of a holy God, a spotless God, perfect without blemish, how can we? Now this problem for the ancient Israelite would have received acute awareness. Remember, they were confronted with not just the real deity, the real God, Yahweh, but the power and the might of the one true God. You would think, as we're recalling Exodus, how does one, in light of what we've learned in this study, stand before this God? You might ask this morning, how do I stand before such a holy God? Consider with me the study. The plagues would be one thing, such power. The spectacular deliverance, another, such might. Israel experienced the miraculous provision in the wilderness. It defied natural reasoning. And then, of course, there was the mountain. The mountain. Let's be reminded, just for a moment, to prepare our hearts for this text this morning, be reminded of that stage in Israel's formation. I'll just read chapter 19, 1 to 6. Remember, as they come to the mountain, on the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel. Now listen to this. What God says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. In other words, you've seen me, you know me. You can testify to that. Israel, you know this. That's one, verse five. Now, therefore, and look at this, in light of what you have seen, in light of what you've experienced, verse five, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And then this, verse 6, and you, Israel, shall be to me, Yahweh, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. See that? Remember the call to the mountain. In light of all that you've seen about who I am and what I can do. You have seen it. You can testify to it. Now you will be a priest to the nations. You will be an intermediary nation to the nations. You shall be specifically, how he says, to me a kingdom of priests 
and a holy nation. Israel is called out, and this is it, called out of all people, the great assembly, the great kahal of all people, as a beacon, a light, as one in between all peoples. And here it is, there's Yahweh, the mighty God of heaven, and then all the peoples of the earth, and then the intermediary people, Israel, the priest of all peoples. But what of this people, these priests? They were a people of God's presence. What about them? God's actual presence on that mountain, think about this, for the intermediary nation, if we zone in on them now, was not approachable at all, was it? You think about chapter 19. You remember that account. You remember later in verse 16, you recall this. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. And then this, verse 22, and also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves lest the Lord break out against them. Lest the Lord break out against them. The terrifying scene there on Sinai, the call of God of his people, but even a people in the people closer, the priests, Moses, of course, the intercessor, and with him, Yahweh says, let the priests come near. But did you catch it? There are people of people, right, to be called nearer, but God said there was a preparation, a necessity for their coming near, and what was it? It was a holy preparation. The priests drawing near to God must what? Consecrate themselves. In other words, you can't come, priests, however you like, You can't come, priests, however you can. You can't come, priests, however it suits you. With your own version of coming to Yahweh, you must come consecrated, set apart. That's holy preparation. That is setting themselves apart for divine devotion unto the Lord. Later, in chapter 28 from here, those priestly preparation instructions would be given. There was, of course, washing and ceremony in chapter 29, but requisite with that in chapter 28 were the garments. You recall those. The mandated priestly attire, the Lord's clothing prescribed by him. The priestly garments showed us that to be in God's presence, and this is it, to be in God's presence, one must be robed rightly. That's the point. To be in God's presence, one must be robed rightly. In the simplest of senses, we could end it there. That's the point of this text, but there's so much more. The reality of the Lord's clothing points to so much, especially today, that is crucial for us to understand. It behooves us to follow the text and be alerted to this importance again. Remember, this is a recap. As we prepare our hearts to study this passage this morning, let us recall two things by way of introduction. Number one, the reality of the Lord's clothing shows us that we are not 
fit enough for God's presence. The reality of the Lord's clothing shows us that we are not fit enough for God's presence. That confronts the false teaching of the today that says, come as you are, God accepts you as you are. Of course, in one sense, the invitation can be that, but it is so much more than that. And the Bible has much to say about being in God's presence as you are. Even more, if that were true, then none of us would be in trouble, would we? If we could come as we are, no one would be in trouble. Why are we here? All are heaven-bound right now. No, Westmount, that's not true. The whole of Scripture cannot be clear on that. By way of brief survey, we are gravely unfit for God's presence. We are cursed, Genesis 3. We are evil, Genesis 4. We turn from God, Psalm 14. We do it over and over again, the book of Judges. Even the most righteous on the earth lie, Abraham, deny Peter, and murder David. In truth, if we're being honest this morning, and I pray we always are, Lord's Day, we're more fit for hell than heaven, aren't we? In truth. Our garments are polluted, the Word of God says, Isaiah 64, 6. So that's one. We're not fit for God's presence. Two, the Lord's clothing here shows us that there is a way to be acceptable to God. And we need to add, praise God. In light of that bad news, here's the good. This text shows us there is a way to be made acceptable to God. In ancient Israel, the clothing prescribed was away. Very intentionally, it was away. Yet it was limited in ancient Israel. It made the priest right before God for that time and for that purpose. But really, in an ultimate sense, the priest was still unfit, right? Holy physical clothing then still did not deal with the garb and the pollution on the inside. As such, in Israel here, like the tabernacle itself, the clothing was a shadow. We've used that language all throughout Exodus. It was like a shadow A shadow. Yes, the encouragement here is that God was pointing to another way, another clothing, a sure way. By way of these priestly garments, Yahweh said, Consider with me, my people, consider garments, consider fitness, consider that it can be a way to be fit, made right, and acceptable by garb and clothing. What the Lord's clothing here in ancient Israel prefigured was a robe of substance. This was the shadow it prefigured a substance, a robe that would soon be made possible for God's chosen people to be fit. So let us then follow the text to where it leads and points us. Let us, Westmount, consider first these clothing types along the way. We begin with this fitting introduction. Look down with me at verse 1. It sets the table. For our passage today, verse 1. From the blue and purple and scarlet yarns, they made finely woven garments. From ministering in the holy place, they made the holy garments for Aaron, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Father, may we have eyes open, and only because you opened them, Let us receive what you have for us today by way of fulfillment in this text, Lord, in ancient Israel. Let us apply that today for betterment today, but glory to you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. 
they made, look at it, they made the holy garments for Aaron as the Lord had commanded Moses. You see that expression there? We're well used to that fulfillment expression, are we not? As the Lord had commanded Moses. In fact, we're going to see it seven times in the first 31 verses of this chapter alone. Seven times as the Lord had commanded Moses. Repeated over and over again as each piece of priestly clothing is fabricated. So let us then consider the manufacture of the first piece that we see here. First piece of Lord's clothing. It is the ephod. Look at verse 2. The ephod. He made the ephod of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. And they hammered out gold leaf, and he cut it into threads to work into the blue and purple and the scarlet yarns, and into the fine twined linen in skill design. They made for the ephod attaching shoulder pieces joined to it as its two edges. And the skillfully woven band on it was one piece with it, and made like it of gold, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, as the Lord had commanded Moses." They made the onyx stones enclosed in settings of gold filigree and engraved like the engravings of a signet according to the names of the sons of Israel. And he set them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod to be stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel as the Lord had commanded Moses. Recall with me then as you look at those verses, the ephod. It's the first priestly garment in view here by way of fulfillment. This manufacture then of fulfillment of the instructions given in chapter 28, 6 through 14. This is the fulfillment of those instructions. Now, an ephod, if you remember, was like a double apron and basically had two sides to it. It'd go down to about the waist, and it was joined by shoulder straps, like an apron on each side. And I trust you recall, even as you look at these verses by way of reminder, how splendid the detail of this clothing was. The gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, those, remember, were the royal, brilliant colors. You needed the finest dyes for those, and God called for them. Remember the onyx shoulder stones. Do you remember engraved on the shoulder were the sons of Israel, the 12 tribes engraved on the two shoulder stones? That, and here we must note this additional detail. Look at verse 3. This is new. And they hammered out gold leaf, and he cut it into threads to work into the blue and purple and the scarlet yarns and into the fine twined linen and skilled design. How majestic was this ephod? Look at that. It had gold thread skillfully woven in. I was reading this week of things like the high malleability and tensile strength of gold. It's quite fascinating to see how flexible and how pliable gold is. It can be hammered as thin as a thousandth of an inch. That's how pliable gold is. And here, they're called to do just that, and then cutting that fine, thin gold into strips, polishing down the end so that it's like thread. Do you think there was care in these pieces of clothing? Incredible to make golden thread. We're reminded here, beloved, of an element of this clothing that we must see. And let's use this reminder for that. And we've seen it before, and the Lord knows we need to see this again, and it's this, the glory and the beauty of the Lord's clothing. The glory and the beauty of the Lord's clothing. The ephod here, like all pieces made, a garment of beauty. Remember, that was the purpose statement. Remember chapter 28, verse 2. 
in the initial instructions, and you, Moses, shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and then for what? Purpose statement, for glory and for beauty. And that's really interesting. That's the purpose given there because that describes the purpose of these garments, ancient garments. And why it's interesting is we consider that these garments didn't really make Aaron fit for God's presence in one sense, did they? Didn't make Aaron fit truly, ultimately, finally before God. That's why it's a very interesting purpose given here. The purpose of these garments, again, was not for Aaron's fitness before the Lord because we know... Christian, they can't. Garb can't do that for a human being. No, these garments were a pointer to true fitness. But here is the point in the text. A beautiful pointer. Pointing to the vessel that would make one fit that is beautiful, that is glorious. Now more on that later, but remember, church, beauty is lost today And we would even say this, maybe some have an allergy to beauty, maybe you're one, depending on your background, you have an allergy to things beautiful because it's normally associated, sadly, with what? The world. They do beautiful things. I don't dare admit it, but they know beauty. But listen to me, see the text, beauty is not a worldly enterprise or an empty effort. Beauty comes from the Lord. Beauty is God's business. Beauty is the thing of the beautiful one. We just take beautiful things, and here it is horizontally. We take beautiful things, and what do we do with them? Pervert them, stain them, kill them. We take the beauty of art. God gives us art, and what do we do? We modernize it, and we make beauty a farce. We take the beauty of gender, the simplistic beauty, God made male, God made female, and we destroy it. We talk to our children and we confuse it. We reduce gender to what? Feeling. We take the beauty of sexuality, the glorious beauty of sexuality, and you know what we do? We remove the infrastructure. Just take marriage right out of it. That's complicated. And let's redefine sexuality. Whenever, however, whoever. We take the beauty of food, and what do we do? We overindulge. We take the beauty of sport, and we make it a religion. We take the beauty of nature, and what do we do? We bow down and worship it. On it goes. We've lost the sense of what is truly glorious and truly beautiful. But don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. The world has no corner on this. It's God's design. Let us reclaim what is truly beautiful and truly glorious. Thus, let us be reminded in this text of what is objectively glorious and beautiful. On to the next piece of the Lord's clothing, the breast piece. Look at verse 8 with me. He made the breast piece in skilled work in the style of the ephod of gold, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It was square. They made the breast piece doubled, a span its length, and a span its breadth when doubled. And they set in it four rows of stones. A row of sardius, topaz, and carbuncle was the first row. And the second row, an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond. The third row, a jacinth, and a gate, and an amethyst. And the fourth row, a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. They were enclosed in settings of gold filigree. 
There were 12 stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They were like signets, each engraved with its name for the 12 tribes. And they made on the breastpiece twisted chains like cords of pure gold. And they made two settings of gold filigree and two gold rings and put the two rings on the two edges of the breastpiece. And they put the two cords of gold and the two rings at the edges of the breastpiece. They attached the two ends of the two cords to the two settings of filigree. Thus they attached it in front to the shoulder pieces of the ephod. Then they made two rings of gold and put them at the two ends of the breastpiece on its inside edge next to the ephod. And they made two rings of gold and attached them in front to the lower part of the two shoulder pieces of the ephod at its seam above the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And they bound the breastpiece by its rings to the rings of the ephod with a lace of blue so that it should lie on the skillfully woven band of the ephod and that the breastpiece should not come loose from the ephod as the Lord had commanded Moses. Recall the breastpiece. Lots there, I pray familiar to you, the fabric pouch or pocket, right, this breastpiece was, that was affixed to the ephod, the front of the ephod, like a fabric pouch affixed to the ephod. By the way, this manufacture was a fulfillment of the instructions given in chapter 28, verses 15 to 28. And you remember, when we looked at that, what adorned the front of the breastpiece, do you remember that vivid, brilliant centerpiece of the breastpiece were the gems, the precious gems, the specific precious gems, not just any, but the very best, and each one of those representing a tribe. The tribes, one each for the 12 sons of Israel, the sons of Jacob, represented, engraved on the shoulder stones of the ephod, you would have had the tribes, but here each with their own gem on the breastpiece, 12 different gems. In fact, look at verses 10 to 13. 12 specific, row by row, different gems. One each. This is the care and craft of the making of this piece of clothing. Each one representing a tribe in Israel. See, for both, don't miss the picture here. Aaron thus, wearing his representation. Do you see that? He is wearing who he represents. Very important. Wearing his representation. And this has become a foundational aspect of the Lord's clothing foundational. In the garments themselves are the ones represented. It's as simple as that. In the garments is the representation. Along with that, we need to point out the glory and beauty that's present here too. Let's not miss that. Not only the brilliance in the 12 different gems, and you just think for a moment, imagine taking that in, just looking at that breastpiece. Imagine the precious gems that are on there, just taking that in. But the glory and beauty in the fasteners. Look at verses 15 to 21. Just incredible. Six, seven verses here to describe the manufacture of twisted chains and rings of pure gold that affix this breastpiece to the ephod. Hardly needs to be said. This is far from clip-on. This is gilded from gold thread to gold fasteners. The most precious materials and construction. Do you see that in the tabernacle? And here are the clothes. Why? Because these pieces, remember, this clothing will be in the Lord's presence. So that's the breastpiece made, a lavish and loaded garment for the priest. Next, let's continue. Look at verse 22. The robe. The robe. He also made the robe of the ephod woven all of blue. 
And the opening of the robe in it was like the opening in a garment with a binding around the opening so that it might not tear. On the hem of the robe, they made pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. They also made bells of pure gold and put the bells between the pomegranates all around the hem of the robe, between the pomegranates, a bell and a pomegranate, a bell and a pomegranate around the hem of the robe for ministering as the Lord had commanded Moses. Recall with me, as you look at those verses, the robe. We move on now to the piece of clothing that's one fuller body, exterior garment, the robe. This manufacture of fulfillment of the instructions given in chapter 28, verses 31 to 35. This is exact fulfillment, in fact. Remember, the robe was worn under the ephod, and it was one piece right down to the knees. The robe, if you recall, was sleeveless with only openings for the arms and for the head to go through. Again, this was a fuller outer garment. That's important. Crafted, look at verse 23, so as not to tear. Care is given that it wouldn't tear. The robe, like the ephod and breastpiece, contained then its own glory and its own beauty. Let's zone in on the hem. You recall what adorned the hem of the robe. Remember first the pomegranates. Pomegranates were prized ancient fruit known for their beauty. Remember, they had that distinct shape, that distinct color. They were prized. And on the hem with the pomegranates, remember, were the bells, the golden bells, not just any bells. And by the way, before we leave the robe, this simply needs to be highlighted. Every detail. Note the arrangement of the pomegranates and the bells. Let's look at verse 24 again. Note the arrangement. On the hem of the robe, they made pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. They also made bells of pure gold and put the bells between the pomegranates all around the hem of the robe between the pomegranates. You could stop there and say, okay, the hem must have bells and pomegranates, right? We get it, but God gives every detail. Verse 26, a bell and a pomegranate, a bell and a pomegranate around the hem of the robe for ministering as the Lord had commanded Moses. Why is that important? Because that is precisely, precisely how God instructed it. In fact, if we were to read verse 33 and 34 back in chapter 28, it would say this, On it, the robe's hem, you shall make pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarn on the hem with bells of gold between them. And note the arrangement, a golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate around the hem of the road. You of us were discussing this week if God is in every single detail of your life, in every decision that you made this morning, you've made probably 37 decisions already, right? God is in and cares for every single one of them. What about two bells and two pomegranates? What about bells here and pomegranates here? No. Obedience not as you are, Obedience precisely as the Lord says. All 37 of those decisions must align with God's word. No, you won't find motor oil or restaurant choice. But does every decision glorify God? In obedience to his word, in principle and practice. A bell and a pomegranate. A bell and a pomegranate. That way. No alterations here, just fulfillment. Exactly, precisely the way that God instructed. Again, we look to the good example of Israel. 
as the Lord had commanded Moses. That's how the robe was made. Next, the coats, the caps, and the undergarments. Look at verse 27. They also made the coats woven of fine linen for Aaron and his sons, and the turban of fine linen, and the caps of fine linen, and the linen undergarments of fine twined linen, and the sash of fine twined linen, and of blue and purple and scarlet yarns, embroidered with needlework as the Lord had commanded Moses. Recall the coats, the caps, and the sashes prescribed both for Aaron and his sons. Yes, here, in just a couple pieces, which we'll see in a moment, look closer at in a moment, we see versions for both the high priest, there's a high priest version, and then there's a version for all priests. Remember, on that, it was not just the high priest that was called to be garbed a particular way. It wasn't just the high priest. All priests, all intermediaries were called to be garbed a certain way. All the priests here ministering in the tabernacle had to wear these inner garments. It's interesting. Back in 2843, we learned that these inner garments were to be on Aaron, the high priest, and his sons, all other priests. When they went into, what did it say, the tent of meeting, or when they came near the altar to minister in the holy place. In other words, this, for all priests, whether the priest was ministering in the courtyard, maybe preparing and offering sacrifices, or their assignment had come to enter the holy place or the most holy place, whatever the assignment was for the priest, in ministry of service, their wearing of these garments was mandatory. See that? Mandatory. So let's take a survey of the fulfillment here from the instructions that we remember in chapter 28. First, the coat. Remember, when you hear coat, it sounds like an outer garment, but it's actually an inner one. The coat was, in fact, actually a tunic, and you know that word. It would have been actually the main inner garment. You remember that the tunic was common in the ancient Near East. It was both functional and it was protective. It was the layer of warmth against the elements. In verse 27, we learn that both the high priest as well as all the priests had to wear a coat of what? Woven fine linen. And note the fabrication outlined here. In other words, not just any linen would do. We need to keep pointing this out because the text begs it. Only linen that was of the finest variety and specifically crafted the way the Lord said. That's the coat. Second, note the headgear. You'll see two different kinds there, the turban and the caps. Now, the turban was specifically the piece for the high priest. And we'll look at that separately in a moment, as the text does in verse 30. The caps, however, were for all priests. And here, they're made precisely as instructed. And again, we just note this as we move along. Even the priests, you would say the non-high priest priests, have garments and caps prescribed, made exactly as prescribed, and needing to be worn. Then there was the undergarments and the sash. The undergarments were indeed the innermost of garments, the ones that resided closest to the skin. For Aaron's sons, they were white, fine linen set apart with beautiful simplicity. Again, all the priests in the tabernacle service were required to wear this garment. There were no exceptions. Every priest had to wear it. However, the high priest noted had a special undergarment, which makes sense with all the separate pieces for the high priest. And for the high priest, his inner garment was called a sash. And quite plainly, the sash 
was set apart even in its construction. Let's look at verse 29. And the sash of fine twined linen of blue and purple and scarlet yarns embroidered with needlework as the Lord had commanded Moses. Look at that again. Undergarments embroidered with needlework. Again, we ask, what kind of care is this in clothing? The most plain, the most hidden garment, note it, is spared no glory and no beauty. Do you see that? What kind of care is this in the Lord's clothing? Yes, even for the sash, this inner garment, beauty is demanded. Next, now we do look at the turban, the high priestly headgear. Look at verse 30. They made the plate of the holy crown of pure gold and wrote on it an inscription like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. And they tied to it a cord of blue to fasten it on the turban above as the Lord had commanded Moses. Recall with me the turban, the piece of headgear specifically designed for the high priest. Here, as we saw back in chapter 28, it's not so much the turban itself that's in view, but in one sense it is. It's a different headpiece. More, what is in view here is what is affixed to the turban. Do you see it? It's the plate. And the name here, we need to note this too, is expanded in this fulfillment. Look at it. Not just the plate. Look at verse 30. Specifically now referred to as what? The plate of the holy crown. This manufacture of fulfillment then of the instructions given in chapter 28, 36 to 38. But not only that, we're getting more detail of this piece. The plate of the holy crown, the plate of pure gold for forehead display which you recall was a display that bore an engraving. Do you remember back in 28? And what did it say? Holy to the Lord. There announced from the turban, from the plate, for all to see that this priest, this high priest, was not just a priest. He was not like a Midianite priest. He was not like just a common priest. No, this one was set apart for the Lord. This one was the designate for the Lord. That's what that plate proclaimed. In fact, consider the forehead. There billboarded on the high priest's forehead was the proclamation. Look at it again. That this priest was holy to the Lord. Here in the turban, a garment of identification. The signature piece, if you will. The capstone of the Lord's clothing. So we would pause there, and we need to, when we think about fulfillment, drawing to a close at this point. Of course, I've considered construction, but I want you to consider clothing with me as we pause before we come back to this chapter next week. And I want you to say and think with me, is this it? Is this it when it comes to clothing? The right clothes with the right nameplate. I can get that, right? We all have our nameplates, don't we? We all wore one coming in today. What would be proclaimed with you? And some would say, I can do that. I've been with church people for a bit now, and I can do that. I remember a few years ago, we encountered a lady who was attending a church. and She said this as we were looking to just help her and bring her along. She said, you know... I'm enjoying coming here. I just need to get to know the lingo. I just need to get to know the lingo. If I could paraphrase, I just need the right nameplate. Then I think, 
I'll be in here and I'll be okay, right? In other words, what is it? I'll be okay horizontally if I have the right nameplate. If I say the right things, I'm going to be okay. And why do we need to point that out as the Lord's clothing passage draws to a close? Because some would say, do garments really and truly matter? I mean, not just instructions on clothing, but repeat and fulfillment. Why? And turn to Matthew 22. It's the end of Jesus' ministry. Of course, his authority is constantly being challenged. And by the most garbed of the time, who were they? The Pharisees. They were fully garbed, and they made sure you knew it. Flowing robes, walking in, they had their garb. And it was the garbed ones, the ones that the commoner might say, those are the ones. You see those Pharisees? They have the Lord's clothing on. It is in the context of that challenge with those Pharisees, as people were hearing Jesus and processing Jesus, and maybe mapping what Jesus' message was to their understanding through the Pharisees. And you can imagine, I just need to look the part. I just need to do that, right? And I'll be okay. That's, that's what I have to do. In fact, to be simplistic, you could say, do I have the right coat on? Because if I have the right coat on, I'm going to be okay. And Jesus tells them this parable, chapter 22. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry. And he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready. But those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. Jesus here is speaking to his chosen people, the Jews, who've rejected him corporately. And says the offer now is going beyond them. But note the principle. True of Israel, true of us church. When, verse 11, when the king came in to look at the guests. So here comes the king. He has returned to see the guests. He saw there a man who had no wedding garment. In other words, no coat. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. One can manner, if we pause there for a moment, all manner of things this man might say. I thought I was good because I was with him, right? I came in with him, and he's really righteous. What do you mean this isn't the right wedding garment? Look what I'm wearing. We can insert all manner of things that we don't want to, but you can consider when you think of what we throw up today. What's the king's response? Then the king said, verse 13, to the attendants, bind him hand and foot, Cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are what? Chosen. Many are called, but few are chosen. Against 
that Jesus says, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And lots of implications here. Let's just, in our limited time, just pull two out. Here's one implication of this parable. The guests may have fooled everyone, right? Do you see that? They fooled everyone. Why? They're at the wedding. But who did they not fool? The king. You cannot fool the king. Can't fool the king. Secondly, garments do matter for entrance to the kingdom of heaven. Right? In other words, you cannot get there if you don't have the right garment on. Garments matter. Church, let's put this all together. The point of the priestly garments in Exodus is this. Access to God's presence, even for a moment, even for once a year, even for whatever the piece of service would be in the tabernacle, let alone service for eternity. In fact, I would say how much more is completely dependent on one's garments. Garments matter. And the reality is our garments are filthy. Yes, they're no more than what? Our garments often are what? Camouflage, aren't they? They hide a lot of things. So where do we find and where do we get the right garment? That would be the question. Maybe you're asking it this morning. Where do I get such a garment? Well, you get it from the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. He offers freely fitting garments to those that recognize him and recognize themselves and recognize their great need for the time draws to a close. He, Jesus Christ, gives his bride, the church, the repentant, the ones that believe in Jesus Christ, he gives the ones with entry to heaven. He fits them with the right robe for heaven, the right garment. In fact, what does he give them? Do you know what this king gives? He gives his own robe. His robe of righteousness. And there's no other way to be right before God on that day. We have skewed vision, don't we? We're like looking in funhouse mirrors, right? That's what it's like. You look in one mirror, you think you're fine. You look in another, and it's all skewed. And that's how we are. The Bible writes us. It says it's only the robe of righteousness from Jesus that fits us for heaven. Only he can provide it, not you. Listen, Revelation 19, verse 8. Speaking of his own, the church says this, It was granted her, the redeemed, to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Hear this, Westmount, hear it. It was granted to her. Do you see that? She didn't muster it up. It was granted to her. That means it was given. That means it was a gift. That gift, that robe, the Lord's clothing is a garment of forgiveness. Does it get more beautiful than that? Forgiveness extended in the robe of righteousness. We all need that. It's the only robe that makes you right before God because it's stained in the blood of the Lamb. And it's His blood that covers you, that makes you fit for heaven. Not your own, believe me. Yes, garments matter. There's no other way to be robed and ready for God's presence. There is no other way. The robe of righteousness is extended, and all that's left is to ask, will you put it on? Will you put on Christ? 
Father in heaven, Lord, we come before this text humbled at the reality of garments. Garments that you prescribe for a time in Israel that point us to the garment, the robe of righteousness, your son Jesus Christ and what he is and what he has done. God, I beg if there are any in this place who do not have that robe on, Lord, that you would do what only you can do. Convict, open their eyes to see, and clothe them anew in your Son. We ask in his name. Amen.